everyone. I'm Mark Tomasetti back with you for our February edition of the Flight Test Safety Podcast. It's 40 degrees here this morning in Northwest Florida, which means, of course, parkas, mittens, and hats. Now, I typically start the podcast off with a look back in aviation history, but because this one is about one of my favorite airplanes, I thought, why not make the whole episode out of it? Back in February of 1969, an aircraft called the XB-70 Valkyrie made its very last flight from Edwards Air Force Base in California to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. NASA research test pilot Fitz Fulton and Lieutenant Colonel Emil Sturmthal, U.S. Air Force, were the flight crew for this final flight. On arrival at Wright-Pat, Fitz Fulton closed out the logbook and handed it over to the curator of the National Museum of the United States Air Force. The Mach 3 Plus prototype strategic bomber and high-speed, high-altitude research airplane had completed 83 flights for a total of 160 hours and 16 minutes of flight time. Now, personal opinion here, but the Valkyrie may be one of the coolest-looking airplanes ever built. Materials and manufacturing techniques had to be developed specifically to build this airplane. It is a large delta-wing airplane with a forward canard and two vertical fins. The outer 20 feet of each wing could be lowered to a 25-degree or 65-degree angle for high-speed flight. Although this did provide additional directional stability, it actually helped increase the compression lift, which supported up to 35% of the airplane's weight in flight. It was powered by six, yes, six, General Electric turbojet engines, which were rated at 22,000 pounds of thrust at sea level and 31,000 pounds with afterburn. The Valkyrie utilized the most advanced technology available at the time. Now, I could go on for the whole episode, but why not listen to someone who actually flew the aircraft talk about it? I will let him introduce himself. My name's Alvin S. White, and I was born in, um, actually in Oakland, California, in 1918. And how did you come become a North American pilot? Well, I had a ride in an airplane when I was about five years old, I guess, and I was fascinated by that. And then in, lived in a little town in Northern California and never thought about flying until about 1939. And the government came out with a program called the Civilian Pilot Training Program. Uh, President Roosevelt was going to train some pilots to be ready in case they got into the war, which they did. So I went into the military and as an aviation cadet and got my commission and did my thing. I went uh, through flying school, became an instructor, and then went into combat for a couple of tours. I didn't. Get, I wanted to go into flight tests right away because I found a big difference between airplanes in the training command, for instance, and those that you had overseas. That was the latest equipment. Nice, brand new, shiny airplanes, if you were lucky. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to fly new equipment. I wanted, you know, I got that urge. So I finally got into test pilot school, and I spent uh, about two and a half years, two years or so, at Edwards as a test pilot. But uh, an opportunity came up to go to work for North American, so I, I left the Air Force and went down there. But I got the assignment with the B-70 in about 1957, I guess. And it took them from 57 to 64 <laughs> to get the airplane in the air, <laughs> to build it, you know, design it, build it, get it ready. Yes, 
from, from early on in the program, or uh, did the engineers uh, willingly seek the pilot's input? Well, um, I was assigned as the project pilot in 1957, and, and 1957 was when uh, North American got the contract. They started work on it on the 1st of January, 1958. I have a, I have a copy of a document here that's a purchase order that was written in uh, 1908 for a, a, I'm going to read this, for one heavier than air flying machine in accordance with Signal Corps Specification 486. This was issued by the War Department and by the Chief Signal Officer. Uh, in those days, I guess, they didn't know the value of airplanes as, as weapons. They were using them as, as message carriers. I don't know. I guess the messages were too heavy, or too heavy for carrier pigeons, so they had to have an airplane. So this specification for this airplane was uh, going to cost $25,000. They, uh, they asked that the airplane be uh, capable of disassembly, carried around in a truck, uh, then reassembled within an hour. The uh, speed qualification for the, for the the requirement for the airplane was 40 miles an hour. If it went 39 miles an hour, they lost 10% of the contract. Uh, if it went 38, they lost 20%, down to 36 miles an hour, and, and if it couldn't do that, they canceled the contract. On the other hand, um, if it went 41 miles an hour, they got a 10% bonus. Now we go from that, if we're talking about history, we go for that, from that for 50-some years later, we come to the XV-70. Now the speed requirement is 2,000 miles an hour versus 20, 125 for the right airplane. The right airplane was required to have two people and not to exceed 350 pounds. I think we flew the B-70 with just two people and I, I, I suspect that we exceeded the 350 pounds. <laughs> um, the $25,000, I, I won't even talk about the price of the V-70. I think you could buy one for $25,000. And you sure couldn't disassemble it in an hour and put it in a box and haul it around on a truck. There is one thing, there's one common feature about the two airplanes, though. The, the, the right airplane, as you might recall, had the longitudinal control system was a, was a canard. Uh, the V-70 also had a canard. I think one, probably in this country, one of the first airplanes that had a canard after the uh, Wright Brothers airplane. Canard on the B-70 was not used as a, uh, a flight control surface. It was used in two ways. We had, we had flaps on the back of the canard, which allowed us to trim the elevons down on the back of a delta wing and, and in, in essence have flaps on a delta wing. Uh, having the flaps on the canard and then trimming the, the uh, elevons down gave us low takeoff and landing speeds. But the canard at, at cruising speed was used as a, as a trim device. It was the longitudinal trim system. It was fixed with the flaps down, but when we took the flaps up, it was a trim system, and that 
reduce the trim drag for the airplane because with proper fuel management, we could keep those elevons back there streamlined and, and uh, reduce the trim drag. It had uh, a windshield ramp that we could streamline, which reduced the drag. We had the, uh, the, the canard uh, value of that at high speed. We had, they, they used a, a system called compression lift, which meant that the shock wave created by the splitter at the forward of the underbody was, was the, the wing was shaped to fit right over that shock wave and that wing picked up a considerable lift uh, riding on the pressure field behind the shock wave. Uh, it had drooped wing tips. We put the wing tips down, which increased the directional stability. Uh, so aerodynamically, it was a very efficient airplane. It had a lift to drag ratio at Mach 3 of, of about eight, which is very good for a big airplane like that. Can you describe uh, the events that led up to the first flight and, and uh, who made the decision for the first flight? Well, I think that decision <laughs> was made r real early. I mean, when, when I was the chief test pilot and the chief project pilot, I think that decision had already been made. What led up to that, it was, you know, it was 1962 that Joe Cotton and Fitz Fulton were assigned to the program, and I already had my backup pilot, Van Shepard. Uh, we had been working on the airplane for quite a while prior to that. When they came on board, when they were assigned, Top management of North American told all of the engineering departments that they had to put together a ground school. They had to tell us about each one of their responsibilities, and that was our ground school. So we spent a lot of time with that, and Cotton and I spent a lot of time flying big airplanes um, because I was an old fighter pilot, and I think they, I don't think they think thought I could handle a bomber, but. We flew the B-52 and the B-47 and the B-58. I flew the Vulcan bomber in England. And so I got my hands on that. But then when they had the rollout in early 1964, I guess, right after that, they took the airplane back and they finished it off, rolled it out to the engine run pad, and we spent two or three months running the engines and checking all the systems. And it was... Cotton and I both felt that we ought to have the pilots do as much as that as possible. Because when you're going to fly a new airplane, you would like to be as familiar with as many things as you can. And we actually slept in the airplane lots of nights when they'd have a, an hour or two hour delay and maintenance said some system wasn't working. We'd rock back in the, in the capsule and either take a nap or talk about the first flight program or whatever. But we spent two months, and we sp we were there. Uh, we had to be ready 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So we spent a lot of time in the airplane. And it, the great benefit of that is when you finally get around to that day when you're going to fly it, you're comfortable in it. You know, you know where everything is, what it's going to be used for, what it's going to tell you. And the only new things that you really have to do then is the responses of the airplane and and how it flies. Can you describe the first flight and what it was like to describe that day? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, it's kind of, I, I um, compare it with 
in one sense with when I was, well, I went through a lot of emotions, you know, taxiing out at Palmdale Airport where the airplane was built. Uh, you see all these hundreds and hundreds of people out there. <laughs> and you think, cheapers, you know. Here's people all over the country that are involved in building that airplane, and a lot of them are out here. They did their job, and now it's up to you to do yours. Uh, you get on a runway, and, you know, everything's kind of getting into, falling into place. And I got to thinking, it's kind of like a, playing in a football game when I was in high school. You're... you're all tensed up and you're nervous and you're this and that and the other thing and then the, you get in the first play and somebody hits you or you hit somebody else and then you're back in your element and that's the way it was flying the airplane. As soon <clears throat> as soon as we released the brakes, that was my element. You know, all that other stuff was stuff you're not used to. So we we did the normal things that we'd practiced for some time uh, release the brakes and you hope that you get to the speed before you get to the end runway and you get cotton to watch the throttles while you're doing this and so the takeoff was pretty and in fact it was an easy airplane to fly really and the takeoff is it's unusual because you're sitting out on the long of this big fishing pole out in front so you go up a lot before the airplane you know when you change attitude you really raise up um those are new things but once we got in the air, and you know everything, we had a few emergencies that first flight. We had a gear failure, and we had an engine go out, and some of those things. But I think the thing that impressed me the most was they wanted to know after the flight what kind of forces I needed to to rotate the airplane, and I guess that it was about thirty pounds of pull. We looked at the data, I'd pulled data and I had pulled 90 pounds. <laughs> I guess the adrenaline was a little higher than I thought. Did the plane fly like you thought it was going to? Well, the, the only, dis yeah, I think really, the only disappointment was that um, we had the gear, it was a very complex gear. It had two bogies on the top, you know, on the bottom of these struts with an axle and two wheels in front and an axle and two wheels in back on each bogey. And those bogies had to rotate like this and then go up on the strut and then the strut would go up in the airplane. Well, it, they rotated and they stopped. It, the hydraulic system failed or something, or the valve failed. So we're sitting there with the airplane going this way and the wheels going this way. And so there was some excitement our tension, I guess, before we got them back straight again. Okay, so then, then we decided we had to go the rest of the flight with a with a gear down. And then we were doing some things, and one of the engines ran away, and we had to shut it down. And, um, finally, I decided that I wanted to get this thing on the ground. You know, I'm I'm better at talking about problems on the ground than I am when I'm sitting up there in the airplane. So we landed, and, and there was a system on this landing gear that that applied 90 pounds of pressure to the brakes to stop the wheels before they went into the wheel well. You know, they don't want to go in there and tear up a bunch of stuff. Well, that system was supposed to release, but it never did, so the brakes were locked when we landed. 
and it's only 90 pounds is only a small pressure against those brakes so so three of the axles kicked loose when we hit the ground the other one one of them froze up and so we blew a couple tires and <laughs> we didn't actually heard a couple of bangs but didn't even know that we'd blown a tire because they said nobody said anything about blown tires they just said you got a fire in the airplane and the fire trucks are after you and they got the fire out and we're sitting there and wondering and then i said can i taxi off there on the runway now and he said hell no you can't taxi <laughs> i got we got two blown tires and the bogey beams all worn off on the bottom and the airplane is frozen out there on the runway so but that's how good it controlled i didn't even know that we'd blown the tires. We heard the thumps, but we didn't know what it was. Well, it sounds like it was quite an exciting first flight. I think so. Yeah, exciting, but it's like anything else when you when you got when you're busy. You don't have time to get too nervous, you know. And we were going through quite a few things right there. We had that. I don't know how many thousand dollars a flight that that cost to fly that airplane but they the people that wrote the data cards and asked for the data filled it up to the the very brim you know so every minute we were doing something and when you're that kind of when you're that kind of busy you don't get you don't have time to worry there originally planned to be three prototypes of the xp70 but ship three was never built and Ship 2 may be one you are most familiar with. That second XB-70 was destroyed when it crashed after a mid-air collision with a Lockheed F-104 flown by NASA Chief Research Test Pilot Joe Walker on the 8th of June in 1966. Both Joe Walker and the XB-70's co-pilot, Major Carl Cross, U.S. Air Force, were killed. The pilot of the XB-70 that day? Well, we just heard from him. That was Al White. In 1966, XB-70s flew at their fastest speed of 2,020 miles per hour, the highest altitude of 74,000 feet, the highest Mach number of Mach 3.08, and sustained Mach 3 for over 32 minutes of flying. But since February of 1969, that remaining XB-70 has been on display at the Air Force Museum in wright Pat. If you are ever in the area, it is worth a visit not only to see that amazing airplane, but the wonderful display of aircraft they have there. Al White's comments were originally recorded during the Society of Experimental Test Pilots Centennial Flight Oral History Sessions in 2003 from both the panel discussions that took place on stage and Al White's individual oral history. SETP has captured over 180 of these oral histories over the years and is in the process of digitizing, editing, and transcribing them. You can find the first six of these on the SETP website under the top menu tab entitled Foundation. Hopefully you've had a chance to read this month's Flight Test Safety Fact newsletter. If you missed it, get online and check it out at our website, www.flighttestsafety.org. In this issue, you will find an article on how your words matter, looking at how we talk when we disagree. Also, a great op-ed piece by Rod Huete on the 2D risk matrix. And as always, some thoughts from me in the Chairman's Corner. Calls for papers are out for several upcoming events, so please check the SETP, SFTE, and AIAA websites for all the details. We are accepting abstracts for the North American Flight Test Safety Workshop, which takes place the first week of May in West Palm Beach, Florida. This year's theme, 
Can organizational culture play a factor in flight test safety? It promises to be an interesting one. Do you have someone in your organization who has made a difference in safety? Well, we are accepting nominations for the Tony LeVere Flight Test Safety Award. Details for how to submit and about the award can be found on our website. Next month, we'll be looking at our listener feedback to the discussion question on simulator mission rehearsal and operationalizing lessons learned. If you haven't sent your thoughts in, get them to us by the end of February, and maybe yours will be featured in the podcast. Until next time, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com.